I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, April 19th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a Medicaid expansion advocate reflects on a dismal past few months. And a new film explores the Mississippi connection to a 1960s basketball team that broke unspoken racial boundaries. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. It's been a no terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year for those in favor of more Medicaid in Mississippi. First, the obvious. State lawmakers ended yet another legislative session without expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Legislators also declined to extend Medicaid coverage for pregnant women from six weeks to 12 months after giving birth. A bill to extend postpartum Medicaid passed the Senate with the support of the lieutenant governor, but it died in the House without a floor vote. Equally significant and more surprising was lawmakers' failure to fix the state's ballot initiative process. In 2021, a group of signature gatherers filed an initiative that sought to expand Medicaid. That effort was put on hold when the ballot initiative process itself was taken to court and overturned. Now, any plans for Medicaid expansion via popular vote are struck down in limbo for at least another year or however long it takes before the legislature reaches a deal to establish an updated initiative process. Dr. John Godet is a pediatrician in Hattiesburg, and he speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance about this. We had a campaign called Yes on 76, which was a ballot initiative um, to um, require the legislature to expand Medicaid to individuals who earned up to 138% of federal poverty level, which would go a long way to filling in the gap um, uh, of individuals who are um, uh, not able to access healthcare coverage through their jobs, uh, but um, uh, don't qualify to be able to to purchase healthcare coverage through the exchange. And this was a population who uh, a hardworking, employed population of individuals that we need to get coverage for. And we had good indication that there was broad support for that across the state. 
when the medical marijuana initiative process was overturned by uh, the state Supreme Court, um, that also upended the state's ballot initiative process. Whenever you heard that news, what were your thoughts? I was extremely disappointed that the the whole process of, and this was a democratic, you know, uh, it was a it was a, a method for the people to make their wishes and their will known to our policymakers and our lawmakers was basically taken away on a technicality that could have and should have been fixed by now. What does the role of the initiative process mean for you, uh, especially when it relates to Medicaid expansion, which Mississippi lawmakers have opposed for so long? Mississippi is one of 12 states that has not expanded Medicaid to uh, citizens who live and work in the health care coverage gap. And when you listen to why uh, the reasons that are given for not expanding Medicaid, they are um, they don't hold water when uh, you look at the numbers and you look at the policies that are there. Um, I believe that um, that the individuals who live and work in the healthcare coverage gap need to be given um, healthcare coverage so they can work and be productive and then hopefully move on to a job where uh, they'll be able to make enough to purchase their own healthcare coverage through the exchange or even to have a job where um, healthcare coverage is given as a benefit. So just to leave those individuals with no healthcare coverage is basically uh, uh, putting a burden on the state in terms of, uh, of decreased productivity, decreased uh, um, tax revenue, uh, and then on the human side, more human suffering and illness and disease that's preventable and or treatable. So without, without expanding Medicaid, I believe it is a net negative on a human side and on a fiscal side. And the citizens know that. However, the uh, policymakers, I believe, are still using tired, uh, uh, disproven uh, political sloganeering in order to say why they don't want to proceed. Well, a ballot initiative is a way to restore power and uh, to restore authority to the citizens of Mississippi to let their wishes be known and to, for our policymakers and our lawmakers um, to be made aware of what the will of the citizens is. One of the things that lawmakers said they were disagreeing on fundamentally about the ballot initiative reinstatement was about the signature gathering. While the House was pushing to you know, keep it relatively the same in terms of you know getting 12% of people who had voted in the recent governor election, um, the Senate was pushing to have it be 12% of people who are, vote, are registered to vote in the state, which would have been a significantly higher number. I, I believe some one lawmaker said it would be about twice as many signatures overall. Do you think that would have been? Do you think that would have just made it too difficult? I think so. We we need to. Um, this is a this is a modality of democracy that needs to be made available to our citizens. And when you're talking about the number of signatures, you're not talking about to pass the initiative. You're talking about signatures to just get it on the ballot. Um, you still have to have uh, voters vote it up or down. 
and and they're given the you know th- that's what you have the election for. Um, I do think I'm, I don't think the bar should be extremely low to get something on the ballot. Then you'll have you know you know dozens of of ballot initiatives on every uh, ballot, and some of them would possibly be completely incomprehensible and or unnecessary. It needs to be difficult enough to make sure that that it is a worthwhile initiative and Medicaid expansion certainly met that bar and the Medicaid and the ballot initiative number 76 was going to meet the signature requirement, but to require the, the, you know, as many signatures as let's say uh, you would need to totally pass the initiative in the general election, I think uh, is, is uh, too hard. You shouldn't make it harder to get on the ballot than it, would be in order uh, to uh, uh, when it's before the voters in the uh, in the election. If the state were to reinstate the ballot initiative process, would this be something you or uh, other doctors in the state would be trying to reassess uh, or take another go at? So I can only speak for myself because I've spoken with many doctors about Medicaid expansion, and there is uh, a lot of support uh, for it. I have not, you know followed that up with, well, what is your uh, belief or uh, uh, views on the ballot initiative process? However, I will say that um, there were many physicians who supported Healthcare for Mississippi uh, and the Yes on 76 campaign and utilizing the ballot initiative process. Um, And and many advocates that I've talked to that I believe that a ballot initiative uh, should be uh, given you know the 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 right to having a ballot initiative should be returned to Mississippians. It's not so much a healthcare issue as I think one of um, having a voice in your government when when your elected officials may not otherwise uh, hear your voice and to give you another way to reach them. Dr. John Godet is a pediatrician and professor in Hattiesburg and filed ballot in shift 76, which would have expanded Medicaid. Dr. Godet, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Coming up, a new film explores the Mississippi connection to a 1960s basketball team that broke unspoken racial boundaries. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Loyola University Chicago men's basketball team has earned of late a reputation for overachieving in the March Madness tournament. But the program's knack for the improbable stretches back a long way. That history is the subject of a new documentary called The Loyola Project, which remembers one Loyola Chicago team that took on the Mississippi State Bulldogs and prompted a racial reckoning en route to a national title. Patrick Creedon directed the film, and he speaks with Mississippi Edition producer Robert Lane. In 1963, there was an unwritten rule in college basketball that limited how many black players a coach could play. Basically, the rule said that you could, you could start three black players, but you could not start four. 
the problem for George Ireland, who was the head coach of Loyola's basketball team, was that his job was in jeopardy. They, he just wasn't very good. His team, um, he had he had a couple of black athletes on his team, uh, but they were just as a whole, they just weren't a really great team. George Ireland realized that the only way for him to save his job was to play his best players. And what that meant was that in 1963, he started four black athletes uh, and they were extremely good. And they, they kind of ushered in uh, the run and gun style of basketball, which is, which of course is part of what modern basketball has become. And along the way, uh, they, they faced some fierce resistance from people who were uncomfortable with what he was doing. And so will you have this up-and-coming team, this up-and-coming majority black team in Chicago, much further down south in Mississippi, you have another really strong team, the Mississippi State Bulldogs, which are not only an all-white team, but also a team that is not permitted to play against teams with black players. Is that right? That's right. Um, at the same time that George Ireland was putting together his all-star team, um, the team that would go on to win the national championship in 1963, Coach Babe McCarthy and the Mississippi State Bulldogs, uh, they were on a roll. You know, Mississippi State had won the SEC in basketball four out of five years in a row. Uh, the problem for them was winning the SEC was the only championship they were allowed to compete for because the governor at the time, Governor Ross Barnett of Mississippi, would not allow any athletes in the state of Mississippi to play against black athletes. So if you played for any of the schools in Mississippi, no matter how good you were, you were limited by that rule that that Governor Barnett enforced. And so for three years in a row, Babe McCarthy had to tell his team that we've won the SEC and we're not going to be able to compete for the national championship. It was incredibly disappointing for that team. These kids were these kids were amazingly talented and they were competitors and they and they knew that they had a chance to be the best if they were given that chance. And the governor would not allow them to pursue that. Finally in nineteen sixty three, the team and the coach had had enough. And after winning the SEC that year and being invited to the NCAA tournament, uh, the team decided to take matters into their own hands. And I'm really excited that you cut off there because I wanted to ask you a little bit more specifically about, and the film touches on this, there's a pretty extraordinary caper that this team comes up with and executes to be able to make it to East Lansing to compete in this tournament. Could you sort of rehash that for our audience? What happened next was um, Mississippi State gets a bid to the NCAA tournament. The, The team accepts the bid and decides that they're going to go play, at which point the governor said, no, you're not. And there was a back and forth between the governor and, and the university and the education board, and this went on for several days in a row. It was kind of like a, like a tennis match of, yes, we will, no, you won't, yes, we will, no, you won't. And finally, the governor issued an injunction which said that if you try to leave the state, to go up to East Lansing, Michigan, to play in this game, you will be arrested. So then they, 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 
they went into sort of a covert operations uh, mode. And the team decided uh, that the morning that they were that they would have to fly, they would split the team into two different teams. There were 12 players on the team. Six of the guys went to one airport. The starting lineup basically went to one airport. And then the substitutes were the decoy, and they went to the other airport, the, the airport that's much closer to campus. They, they acted as decoys in this. And the thinking was that if the decoys got arrested, that the starting lineup would be able to hop on a different airplane at a different airport and sneak out of town. Um, in the end, what happened was the decoys did not see any signs of law enforcement or any signs of resistance, and they called over to the starting lineup and said the coast is clear. And they all ended up hopping on the same airplane and flying out of state. What they actually did was they flew to another airport um, in a neighboring state where Babe McCarthy was waiting for them. He actually snuck out the night before. He was hiding on the floor of a car, and they snuck him out of the state. Remember, Babe McCarthy is one of the most famous men in Mississippi at the time. He was an incredibly talented basketball coach, and everyone knew who he was. So he had to be careful not to be recognized leaving the state. They, you know, they left in the middle of the night. And the players also had to be careful that they weren't recognized as they were leaving leaving the state. At the end of the day, my favorite detail about this story is that these 12 young men and their coach fly off to East Lansing, Michigan. They have no idea what kind of reception that they would receive when they walked onto the court that night to play Loyola. And most of them felt, you know, this is not going to be a warm reception because we're, you know, we're these white kids from Mississippi, you know, we're many people look at us as the bad guys here because of our association with the state and our association with the governor. What happened was the opposite as they were walking through the tunnel to walk onto the court that night one of the local marching bands had learned the fight song to Mississippi State, and they started playing it when Mississippi walked onto the court. You know, thinking about it almost 60 years later brought Jackie Wolford, one of the members of that team, it brought him to tears. He, he realized that they were living in a bubble in Mississippi, and that the governor who held all the power um, was dictating um, what the rules were and who they could play and who they weren't allowed to play. When you step outside of that bubble, you realize that there's a different reality. And not only were they warmly received by the audience in East Lansing, but even more surprisingly, when they flew back to Mississippi there was a huge welcoming party to welcome them home and to celebrate what they had done. You know, it's, it's, it's these small battles, if you will, that, that are the, the ones that win the war. You know, this basketball game, I mean, it was a sweet 16 game. It wasn't even like a final four game, but this basketball game, which, which in all other regards would have been, you know, largely forgettable this basketball game 
really moved the needle in the civil rights um, struggle that was happening in the 60s in America. And the Mississippi State Bulldogs uh, and their fans played a huge role in it. I want to circle back to something you mentioned to me off air, which is that, you know, this film deals in a pretty nuanced way with the history of race in America. And there are a number of states, Mississippi included, that have sought to pass or already have passed, such as in Mississippi, bills that would limit how the history of race can be discussed and taught on college campuses. I also know that you're looking to tour this movie across college campuses in the United States. How have those laws nationally affected your thinking about those plans? Well, currently there's there's about 42 different states that are um, considering legislation that would limit how American history and history around race is taught. Um, the laws differ uh, from state to state, and some of the language is a little fuzzy. Um, but in general, what, what these laws all have in common is that they would put constraints around the way American history, and in particular, American history around race relations is taught. Um, you know, <laughs> that's really chilling to me because that those laws would affect our film, just as an example. Our film is the recollections of a bunch of athletes, black and white, who played basketball in 1963. And it talks about their experiences. It's honest. It's entertaining. Um, it is a, it's an accurate snapshot of what their experiences were. And it also sheds a lot of light on the complexities around race relations then and now. So the fact that our movie would not be allowed to play on college campuses or in high schools, um, it's incredibly dangerous. Um, I'm really proud of the movie. It's, it's streaming on Paramount Plus now. It ran on CBS uh, this spring. Um, and the movie has been very well received, and it's a great story. But there's something very different between watching a movie in your home um, streaming it or watching it on a laptop, let's say, all by yourself, and watching it with an audience. When, when you watch it with an audience and then you talk about the story afterwards, uh, I've seen this. It, it, people, people really open up. People want to have a conversation about race, but in many cases they don't really know how to. Um, this movie is a great tool for starting a conversation, and frankly, most importantly, this film does what I consider to be step one, you know, in addressing the problems of race in our country, which is it allows audiences to just sit back and listen. It allows them to listen to the story of these men and what they went through. And I think that's a really good place to start when it comes to, prob to solving any problem. 
Patrick Creedon directed the Loyola Project. The film is available to stream now on Paramount+. Plus. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Money Talks. Then at 10, it's in legal terms. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio.